Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We are so glad that you are here today. Welcome to part three of a series we've called Guardrails. Inside of your program is a note sheet. It looks like this in case I say something interesting, you want to write it down. Um, the idea of the uh, principle behind guardrails is simply this. We know about guardrails in real life. Um, you drove probably by a few on your way here today. Uh, there's a system. There's, it's a system basically designed to keep your car on the road, to direct you and protect you uh, from edges of cliffs or oncoming traffic or other things that could be dangerous. And they're always placed in the safety zone. They're always uh, a spot in, uh, they occupy real estate where you could actually drive on that safely. Um, but we, we put them in those places because we know that though it's safe, it's really close to something dangerous. And we've all been in those situations where, you know, in life, one thing led to another, one thing led to another, one thing led to another, and before you know it, you ended up in a ditch, and you don't want that. So we said life is, uh, or sorry, that guardrails are not just important for highway driving, they're also important for life, that we can put up personal standards of consciousness, personal standards of, of things that we would hold ourselves to based on our uh, past experiences, our current circumstances, and our future hopes and dreams. What are some things I want to protect myself from? So I'm going to have something that's going to light up my conscience. I want something that makes me uneasy early. I want to feel uncomfortable about this because I don't ever want to end up in a ditch financially, professionally, relationally, or sexually, or any, any of those different options. I, I want to protect myself in that way. We said that guardrails limit damage or they minimize damage because we know that if you ever have ever hit a guardrail, it's like it's a terrible day. It sucks. But you may have to visit an auto body shop, but you may not have to visit a hospital. There are things that can protect us from future and further damage. And so we said that there are, are significant areas in our life where that deserve an attention and, and perhaps some guardrails to be set in place. Last week, we looked at uh, friends and associates basically relationships, but not sexual relationships. And then today we're talking about friends with benefits. So boundaries when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to really healthy uh, boundaries when it comes to fidelity in relationships, okay? That, that's the, the point of today um, is not, let's talk about is, is X a, a sin? This whole series has not been, is this a sin? Is this a sin? That's a better question. A far better question is, is this a wise thing for me to do? And in no other area of our life, in, in this area, is our boundaries most needed and does the experience our most resistant, our, our most hesitation towards it? We are so resistant to establish and have healthy boundaries when it comes to our sexuality, and yet we need it most. In other areas, we need boundaries, but in this way, it feels like we need like reinforced steel type of boundaries. And I feel like anytime I get a chance to talk about sex, and this, today, if, if you picked, if this is your first day, you picked a fantastic day. We're talking about sex, which is always a good one. This is always uh, uh, a, a very, very popular uh, one. Not necessarily downloadable, but like, can you believe we went today? This is a, this is perfect timing for us. Uh, but um, I do feel like, as a pastor, you you know that. Um, you have expectations about what I'm supposed to say. And I feel sometimes like uh, it's not like a broken record a little bit. I feel like an Old Testament prophet every once in a while who's like, you know, yelling and screaming. And everybody just kind of like walks by. And yeah, whatever, dude. Ignores you. You know, the guy on the, on, the, on, the, on the corner with the signs going, hey, repent, repent, repent. And it's like you just walk through the streets of Vegas and don't care about what they have to say. And they got a bullhorn. Anyways, it's kind of weird. But that's a little bit how it feels like. And it's not a slam on you. It's just you already know kind of the, the conclusions that I'm probably going to draw on. And we know the verse that we're going to go to. But Here's why it's still important. Here's why I feel like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I still have to talk about it because everything that we watch, we read, we listen to in our media glorifies poor sexual boundaries. 
um, glorifies sex outside of marriage and loose moral boundaries. In fact, when was the last time that you saw a love scene that featured a married couple, right? Uh, Rocky one? I mean, is that, is, do you have to go as far back as that? Like, uh, it, it's, it's weird how we, we, when we, if we, if we happen to see that, we would say things like, get a room. Like, are you kidding me? This feels like my parents. I'm out. And yet we glorify illicit sexual encounters. We glorify illicit sexual things and, and we watch and we read it. And, and then here's what's funny is we're so thrown off when it actually happens in real life. We read about fair affairs, we read about this, and then when our brother-in-law cheats on our sister and, and, and runs off with another woman, we cannot believe it. Ugh, it makes us sick to our stomach. So sick, I just want to go home, lie on my couch, and read Fifty Shades of Grey, right? And, and then put myself, or whatever. We, it's, so, it's funny, we, we, our appetite, we're fed, we're constantly fed a constant diet of sexual immorality, and yet when it actually comes in real life, we don't want that, we don't want it in our life, we don't want it for the people that we care about, we, we, we want health, we want fidelity when it comes to relationships, but we are entertained by infidelity. We are entertained by whatever goes, goes, and so anyways, this passage in scripture, 1 Corinthians, um, it was a letter, it's not a book really, it was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, uh, and in this, in this letter, he's writing to a city where... Um, sexuality is as free as it ever was. It, it feels like here, it's like the, the whole adage um, of what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. What happens in Vegas stays in What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. They had, this, they had this belief about duality of mind. What's important is what you think about, what your mind rests on. What you do with your body isn't all that important. It's just physical. Do whatever it is. You, you're an animal. You have an animal instinct, so therefore just go with it. So anyways, he's writing to this culture, and he's trying to talk to, give advice to Christians who are trying to make sense of Christianity in light of the culture they live with. And so here's what he writes in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. And we get a chance to look over the shoulder of this and kind of look at this and be like, okay, well, how does this culture relate to ours uh, when it comes to this? And, and, what is it, and so this word here, flee, what do you mean flee from it? He means run with abandon, right? This is this is get out as fast as you can. When we took over this, this old theater and we did a whole bunch of remodel work, we had to add in, there was, uh, there's a term called in, ingress and egress, when people, how people come in and how people go out and if there happened to be an emergency, uh, if there happened to be a fire, how do people get out? And so we've got these, this is a great time to talk about our two emergency exits here in the front. It goes to either side in the alley. But, and, and they also made us put an uh, exit light at the top of the ramp as people are coming in. And I remember walking through and we, there was no electric, uh, no electric feed there. And so it was going to cost us a lot of money and some time to be able to, to do this. And I, and I asked the fire code guy, whatever his, you know, whatever his role is, I said, are you sure we have to have that? I mean, people just walk through there. When you just walk into something, you kind of figure out that naturally that's where I would kind of go out as well. If it, if it was an entrance, by default, it's also an exit for me. I shouldn't have to explain that to people, right? And he's like, you don't understand. We treat things as when, when an emergency happens, when a fire takes place, and I know I'm not supposed to say fire in a theater. So when flames take place um, in a theater, people lose all sense of rationality. He's like, it, it's, it's amazing. You hear stories about it, and, and people don't do what makes sense. They do what um, just comes out. They they're literally in flea mode, right? And so it's just like a reckless abandon. I'm going wherever. And so they'll, they'll, you have to make it very, very clear and obvious. And so obviously we brought in the, the feed. But that's the kind of activity, that kind of get out and, and disregard completely what's around you, 
throwing chairs all over the place. Just, I just get out of it completely. Here's his advice. Paul's advice, and it's, it's not, this is kind of what you expected from a church and expected from a pastor. I, I, I get it. I understand it. Flee from sexual immorality. And, and before you get kind of like, oh boy, you're, you know, freaking out or whatever, this is what you want. If you're a wife, this is what you want your husband to do at work when compromising circumstances arise, don't you? When you're, if you're a husband and your wife is like going to the gym and you're like, I, I don't go to the gym because, you know, I'm, well, you know, I'm more, I have other priorities, but I'm, I'm, I want you to be able to flee from sexual immorality when it comes to, to there, because I've heard stories about the yoga instructor and all, and all this kind of stuff, and he looks good in Speedos, and I don't. So therefore, flee from sexual immorality, aka the guy at the gym who looks good in Nike dry fit stuff, right? This is what every fiance wants their fiance to do. So every dad wants his daughter to do. So every mom wants their son to do. This is what we want for the people that we love. I don't want you to ruin your life through poor sexual decisions. I don't want you to do it. I've seen too much damage done in that way. And yet, huh, so then when we hear it as kind of a command for us, we feel like it's like so prohibitive or it's so inhibitive or it's so regressive, right? Oh my gosh, Brent, this this is what the church has been teaching for years, and it's, it's never really dealt with sexuality openly, and, and, and this has been a problem for, for so long. Listen, you have got an option. What culture tells you and what culture insinuates and then what scripture teaches in this way, you can either flee from or flirt with. Flee from or flirt with. We said that culture tends to bait us towards the edge and then chastise us when we go over the edge. When it comes to the painted line, of um, drink responsibly. It's drink responsibly, drink responsibly. How could you, you're such a drunk. You have a problem. You have an alcohol problem. Now you got a DUI, what's wrong with you? We bait, they bait us to the edge and then chastise us, mock us, make fun of us when we go over the edge. When it comes to sexual immorality, baits us to the edge. And then how dare you throw away this opportunity to spend forever with this beautiful woman? How, what, with, with, with her, with that, with what? I mean, come on, what, what's, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You're like, I don't know, man, something, something really wrong with me. You either flee from or you flirt with. And here's the, here's the unique thing about sexual infidelity and immorality, okay? Usually given enough time and enough second chances, you can fully recover from a financial disaster. If you've ever had a financial disaster in life, you went bankrupt, you lost your house. You bought a house in like 2007. The market crashed in 2009. And even though it didn't affect the Tri-Cities all that much, it kind of affected you. Maybe you live somewhere else. All of a sudden, you had to like short sale or, or repossess home, repossess car, something like that. It was dumb. In the moment, it sucked. But a few years later, you laugh about it. You use it as a training thing for your kids. This is why we always pay our bills first, kids. This is why we always do this. This is why we, always, this is why we don't eat out all the time. This is why we don't write checks or bump up credit cards like we, you know, because we don't care. This is, this is why we have, we're smart in this area. And you, at some point, it gets to the spot where it's, it's almost funny and comical thinking about how stupid you were 20 years ago when it comes to finances. Or educational disaster. You signed up to go to school. You signed up for this class because you thought, you know, I think I can do calculus. I, I think I'm in for this. And then it was just a disaster. And you had to bail out. You had to drop out of school. And in that moment, yeah, it was a terrible thing. But five years from then, six, 10 years from then, from, from that point or whatever, you laugh about it now. Or a vocational or professional disaster. You took a job somewhere. You moved somewhere. You moved to the Tri-Cities because of this, this uh, nuclear facility that they're, they're building stuff. And you're like, this is going to be the best, most life-fulfilling job I'll ever have. And then it wasn't. 
and then you, you, you dropped out of that, you, you got fired from that or let go from that or there was some downsizing or you voluntarily left or something. And there was a, an absolute vocational disaster. And that was five years ago. And that right about now is when you can start laughing about it. It's kind of funny to you. Now, here's the thing. When you go through something with a sexual history, people don't typically talk about that and they definitely don't laugh about it. Nobody laughs about a train wreck when it comes to sexuality. Nobody does. It's something that's it's broken in us, and it's something that we, we may never fully escape. In fact, there's an article that came out um, in the most recent edition of the New Yorker magazine, um, and it's about a, an author who writes novels, and he was at a book signing, and in his novels, his characters often feature people who are coming with some sort of sexual baggage, a, a abusive history, or, or just, uh, you know, just an inability to really connect or, or struggle with uh, with connecting at, on an intimate level with, with somebody else. Uh, and so somebody came through the book line and um, was asking him to sign the book and, and, and then asked him, hey, is this come from a reservoir of experience for you? Or is this like, how, how do you wrap? Because you write with such clarity on this. Are you writing from experience or are you just a really good author? And in that moment, he says, I, 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 and he's writing an open letter now because he's apologizing. He's like, in that moment, I told you there's nothing in my personal history. It's just, it's just how I write. That's just who I am, right? But it had no, nothing to do with experience. He's like, because even in that moment, I didn't want to, and whether it was because there's a crowd and there's a lot of people or whatever, but I, I denied any sort of past experience with that, and I made it come across as if that's just my ability to write. That's my creative abilities that I've been blessed with. And he's like, but really, I, har I harbor a very dark secret about something that happened to me a long time ago, and I've never gotten over it, and it's affected every relationship, and I'm writing this open letter because I feel disingenuous about how I treated you, and I could tell it in your eyes you were disappointed because you kind of knew without even asking me what, what was going on, and yet I can't even deal with it. I'm not, at a point, I'm not at a point really where I can come out and be open with it still. I'm still working through this, and this happened to me when I was eight years old is what he's saying. So my, my opportunity now is to write an open letter in The New Yorker and just hope by chance that you happen to read it. Really, really powerful story, and what it highlights is a reality that our our culture tries to make the assumption that oh sex isn't just a physical it's just a physical thing it's just there's no, it's nothing more than physical stuff and yet when it comes to our aggression towards those people who have abused people in the past it's definitely it feels worse if you've ever had sexual if you've gone through sexual abuse you know this is not something that you get over that you work with this is this is is there forgiveness there of course there's forgiveness there but but there, but it's it's not something that you can completely avoid the circumstances. This is intense. This is heavy, deep stuff. Like when when it comes to sexuality, there is there there's far more than just surface level. It's not the same as as just everything else. And and Paul kind of knows this. It's uniquely damaging. That's that's the word I was trying to get to. Sexual immorality is uniquely damaging. Sexual sin will make you a liar and a secret keeper for life, like nothing else will. Do you want to know how many times I've met with a married couple who they would, they would meet me for coffee or whatever, or it comes out through counseling, or you hear it and just through the thing, that there, there's been a secret. They've told me everything about their life except for this one little part. And it's not like I used to have a hobby. I used to collect Beanie Babies, and I still have some in my attic, right? That's not what they ever say. As soon as they go down that road of there's something that's coming out that we're working with that we didn't, uh, we've never talked about, and it's been 10, 15, 20 years, and I've known this person, and they, they told me part of the story, but not the whole story you know in that moment what it is. Well, you don't know the exact details, but you know the parameters. It really has nothing to do with, yeah, I declared bankruptcy in 2006 and I'm so embarrassed to talk about it. 
yeah, I dropped out of Wazoo. I just I couldn't make it. Ha- I couldn't make it work. It ha- that stuff comes out fairly easily. You know in that moment what it is. I don't even have to go into that. You get it. You understand. Oh, there's a past. There's a history there. So he goes on. First Corinthians. Chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. If it's that significant, if it's that emotionally impactful, if it's that, if it's that so ingrained to um, our identity, flee from sexual immorality, what would you expect him to say? Painted lines, be careful. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside his body, or outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He goes into this kind of thing here where... Um, what does it mean to sin sexually in that way? Um, what well, helps to define a little bit about what sin is. Anytime you look at the New Testament definition of sin, and you might have a different mark, or somebody in a position like me may have explained sin to you as missing the mark from God or God's expectations of, of you. And, and unfortunately, what that breeds is oftentimes God up in heaven with some sort of a low tolerance on his people not obeying the rules and quick to chastise them. And that really has nothing to do with, with what's, going on in this way. Here's what sin is described when you look at it from like a holistic standpoint from the New Testament. Hurting, stealing from, or dishonoring another person. Hurting, stealing from, or dishonoring another person. Anytime that I put myself ahead of you, my priorities are what I want ahead of what you need to your detriment, that is sin. I'm stealing from you, I'm hurting you, or I'm dishonoring you in some different way. So when it comes to sexuality, every person you hurt, steal from, or dishonor is Loved by God. When I'm operating in this way, I'm stealing from you an opportunity for you to experience true intimacy. I'm, I'm experiencing, I'm robbing you from an ability to connect emotionally with your future spouse in a committed relationship because I, I've invited you to treat it so cheaply. And so what we've done is we've hurt somebody else. And that person is somebody, every person that you date, every person that you love, every person that you walk around the park with, every person that you work with, they are loved by God. And so therefore, what we have here is, and I've said this before, like, um, if you and I, if you want to have a good relationship with me, one of the, it's not about um, you buying me gifts or showering me with praise or whatever. When you treat my kids with respect and when you love my kids and when my kids love you, um, that makes me more inclined to like you. On the, on the flip side, you do something to hurt my kids, but like you try and act like we're cool, um, it's not going to work. It's not going to work, right? So God, God's up in heaven. Or God's, God's out there going, listen, I've created these people in my image. Everybody that you date, work with, sleep with, uh, all of this, that's somebody that is, the, is made in the image of God. And when you cheapen up what is essentially meant to be an exclusive gift, experience that develops into intimacy and the safeguards of a committed relationship, you're essentially robbing, stealing from, hurting, and dishonoring them. And it's like, and God's going, how can I just stand by and not say anything about this? We, we, know, we know this idea, and one of the ethics that can come across from this is uh, we know the ethic of the golden rule, right? Um, it's, uh, you grew up as, as a kid, you weren't even religious, and you probably heard of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Treat others the way, the way that you want to be treated. This showed up last night at the dinner table. Uh, we have five-year-old twins, and uh, Grayson is our, our son, and he was doing something to Jovi, and she didn't like it. And instead of using words, she just ah, does that kind of thing, you know, makes noises. 
And so um, we have to be, we have, my wife is like, Grayson, treat Joby the way that you would want to be treated, right? And we know that at like a base age with this, with this concept of, of this super simplistic ethic is do unto others, which is, I get it, I understand. But we said about a month ago that, that the golden rule is really superseded by the platinum rule as it comes out with, um, when Jesus talks with his disciples. Jesus is meeting with his disciples one night and he says, listen, it's the, forget the whole do unto others as you do unto you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That includes the golden rule and it makes it, it trumps it a little bit more. It adds on to it. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. In fact, people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. They will look at that and be like, how? He must be one of those Christian people because he's treating people in a way that is beyond just, I'm doing this so that you'll do this for me. Quid pro quo, like I, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I love you so that you love me. He's like, no, no, I love you because God through Christ has loved me. And basically, Paul is saying, carry this into this sort of relationship. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? It goes beyond that. So here, here he goes on. Don't do not know. Verse 19. Do you not know? Now, he had visited this church once before, or this group of people, and had left and was writing them a letter back. So there's a chance at which, there, there's a couple options here. He could be reminding them of something that he taught while he was there, or he could be absolutely actually saying, you may not know this. And once you do know this, it should affect what you do. Because, and you know the information that I'm about to tell you, it changes the way that you behave. You're not behaving that way, so you may not know it. So let me tell you, do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Do you not know? And this is, and he's incorporating some, like a, a, a very, um, Christian doctrine of it's what's called the indwelling of the spirit, that when you cross over the line of faith, when you begin to trust Jesus as your heavenly father, he says that the, God's spirit comes inside of you and it is experienced through an uptick in your conscience. Like there's something that triggers this, I shouldn't do that, or I definitely should do this more than just the average person, right? So he says, do you not know that your bodies are literally temples of the Holy Spirit? And he shifts the conversation away from consequences. Don't you know that if you do this, God's going to Despite you, God's going to do this. God, no, he, he, he appeals not to the consequences, not to the avoidance of consequences, but instead towards an identity. Don't do this. Remember what you are. Remember, you are, you are created in the image of God. You are sacred image bearer. You did not just happen, and you are not an accident. In spite of what your older brother may have told you your entire childhood, you are not an accident, okay? Now, there may be a 10-year gap between you, and that may be completely sort of like sort of true in that way, right? But in the eyes of God, you're not an accident. You were designed in this way, and, and Christianity has always held a high regard for every single individual being a sacred image bearer of God, which is why we should treat others with the respect that they deserve, and sometimes the respect that they don't deserve, and treat them as I have loved you, so you must love one another. You are a sacred image bearer, and so are the people you work with, and so are the people that you date. And its conclusion he goes on to, in verse 19 and 20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Therefore, 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 honor God with your bodies. This right here is the New Testament ethic. In light of who you are, in light of what you are as a sacred image bearer, here's what you should do. Honor God with your body. You live in a culture that may or may not, this is what it, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, 
You live in a culture that may treat like your mind as one thing and your body as something else. Your body is just physical and it's just this animal instincts and you just got to meet it. But I'm telling you that's not exactly true. Honor God with your body. So a better question then, is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is this a sin? A better, we, we said, listen, it's not about necessarily right, wrong, black, and white. What this series has been about is about wisdom in this area. So in light of wisdom, in light of the fact that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, what would be a wise thing for you to do? What, how would it look for you to wisely honor God with your bodies? Knowing the potential consequences or ramifications of poor sexual boundaries, what do you do with that? And this is a decision you have to make, and by not making a decision, you're, in a sense, making a decision. And I think fleeing requires guardrails. So we're going to talk real quickly. I'm going to give you some ideas of some, what I think are pretty decent guardrails when it comes to sexuality and marriage and fidelity in relationships, okay? I've got a breakdown into uh, two breakdowns, one for married people and one for single people. And I've said this about every series or every message so far in this series. These are simply suggestions. These are not biblical. This is not, uh, this is, this, these are Brent's opinions. So if you, you look at them and you go, I like one and three, but I hate two and four, um, then that's fine. Uh, you, what I'm saying is you need to decide for yourself based on my past experiences, current circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, what's the appropriate thing? Where do I need to set, I, where I need to be uneasy early so that I don't end up in the ditch when it comes to my sexual um, morality, all right? So first and foremost, for married people, number one is this, you need to talk about it. One of your boundaries, if you want to know what it's going to take or what I need to do in terms of uh, guardrails in this area, you need to be able to talk about it. And I wrote just down some, some bullet points. It's going to be a little bit scattered on this. That's intentional because um, I, 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 uh, I want to try and insert opportunities for you to be able to talk about this later, and, and there's too much to go into each one specifically. But what are you comfortable with in regards to your partner's relationship with other men and other women? What are you comfortable with? Have you talked about that before? If you're married, you're in a long-term committed relationship. When was the last time that you said, hey, are there any friendships that I have that make you feel uncomfortable? Is there anything I do around people of the opposite sex that make you feel uncomfortable? Is there any red flags type things? Is there anybody at work that makes you feel uneasy? Let's talk about it. Let's get this out in the open. Let's get this going. You need to decide together what's appropriate behavior for me in the workplace. In week one, we said one of the boundaries, we talked about the Billy Graham rule, like the whole idea that he never traveled alone with anybody or ate alone with anybody. I'm not saying that that has to be for you. I'm just saying you need to, you need to have a conversation with your significant other and say, what do you think are going to be healthy boundaries for us and your expectations for me and my expectations uh, for you when it comes to um, wh- what makes you feel safe? What makes you feel like there's trust there? That, you, that and, if, and if there was ever a breach of trust that I'd be able to kind of talk through and work through it, and it becomes a talking point for us, as opposed to just the, I feel guilty about it, or you feel hesitant and, and, and distrustful, and, and now there's all kinds of questions, and then we go in this, in this route. Bullet point number one or two, or I don't know what we're on, but you should avoid travel and eating alone with potentially problematic people. Hey guys, if you're married, you should avoid traveling and eating alone with potentially problematic people. Your immediate response is, well, who are potentially problematic people? And my immediate response to that is, you know exactly who they are, don't you? 
Uh, it's the person that you have figured out a way to walk by her desk on the way to the water fountain or the bathroom, even though the clear path that's way more efficient is this way, I'm going to go this way. I'm looking for excuses to call meetings that are going to include them. I'm, I'm looking for excuses to, um, to put myself in a position where our, our paths cross. It's at the gym. It's at the, it's at the, 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 the store. It's at something. And, and, and you know it's problematic for you. And there's, there's by the way, is it safe? Sure. Right? Is, is, there, is there anything that's completely taken? Is, there, is, it, uh, is there anything that you can't justify or talk yourself through? Have you done anything wrong? No, you haven't done anything wrong, but you know. If one thing led to another, I could potentially find myself in a spot where I am throwing away my relationship for this. So therefore, I'm going to back that thing up a little bit further than what is probably even safe. And I'm not going to do that. Another workplace-related one. For those of you who are in a position of hiring, like you're a boss or whatever, don't hire cute people just because they need your help. Oh, but this person needs my help. I'm going to hire them um, and give them a hand up because they really, really need it. And it's just a coincidence that they happen to be a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, right? You don't feel that same obligation for ugly people, but for cute ones, you're like, they just need a little help. And your wife notices, gosh, she's cute. That new, that new hire that you had, she's kind of cute, isn't she? She's like... And you know that she's testing you, and you're like not sure what the answer is supposed to be. No, she's hideous, or yeah, I guess so. I haven't really noticed. You know what I mean? Like you're you're walking through. What is the safe zone here? We're all treading lightly. Everyone's uncomfortable. Not sure what to say. Just want to go to work. Hmm. Don't confide in or counsel with somebody. Unless you're a licensed counselor and you're not. So let's, let's, just, let's just avoid that, right? But don't confide in somebody. Gosh, I've been struggling with my marriage. Can I talk to you, you single person? <laughs> you just seem, you listen so well. You have such an ear for this stuff, man. You're so good at this. Don't counsel with somebody. They come to you for advice. And you're like, listen, listen, listen. I want to help you. But I, I, I'm not in a position to do that. I want to find, I want to help you find help. And I feel like I can do that in a healthy way. But like you talking to me about the struggles that you're going through, and we're going to do it over coffee, but then coffee turns into lunch and then lunch turns into a dinner and then dinner turns into a, a mess is what it turns into. And one thing led to another and I never had healthy enough boundaries for enough in place where I decided, you know what, I'm not going to confide in or counsel. By the way, you give lousy advice anyways. So don't act like, oh, well, they need my help. Your help, your advice is going to be terrible for them. So don't worry about that. Don't worry. They'll, they'll find better advice somewhere. Google is their friend. I don't know, something, something different. Just being advice. I'm just being, I'm just trying to be honest. I'm, tr I'm trying to poke, and I don't really have like a firm thing, but I'm just trying to poke a little bit and be like, oh, you know what it is for you. It's not, maybe not one of these things, but you know where I'm leading. You know what you don't want me to say next, right? Something along those lines. Number two, tell somebody about it. Married people, when you feel your heart drifting towards or, emotion, uh, or your emotions getting attached to somebody that's out of bounds because you're in a committed relationship, when, you're, when your imagination is drifting towards them, when your emotions are drifting towards them, when you're more emotionally 
satisfied by a little move from them than a strong move from the person that you're supposed to be aroused by, then there's something wrong in that way. You should tell somebody about it. And it may not be your spouse at first because it may be nothing. It may be small. It may be I don't want to start fires that I can't put out. I don't want to, I don't want to bring up every little thing because it's going to be distressful. I, I, I get that. I understand that. But somebody, you need to tell somebody. When you find yourself hesitating to tell anybody, that should be a guardrail. You should be alert. You should be uneasy early that that's taking place. Social media only makes this even that much more difficult. We see the highlight reels of everybody else. We see where they're going on their trips and what they look like and how their diet's been going and how often they're working out. And we're like, man, he looks good. She looks good. And you've never done anything physically, but emotionally, and from your imagination, there's something there. There's something there. Watch out. Put up, make sure there's a guardrail in place that that does not become more than what it should be. Now, if you're single, got a couple of advice, a couple of bullet point kind of guardrails, potential guardrails. Again, take them or leave them. I don't care. A little harder for you. This is, this is going to be a little bit more difficult. This is more, a little bit more exciting, I, I should say, when it comes to sexual morality and singleness. I should caution, it's been uh, a few years since I've been single. So you may be like, that's so out of touch. Probably. You're probably right. Number one, gouge your eyes out with a spoon. That's my single piece of advice for you. That would be... Uh, hard, but uh, probably really difficult and, and probably worth it. I'm just kidding, obviously. Number one, here's a really good one. Apply the married people guardrails with other married people. The ones that I just talked about. He's married. Don't confide with him. Don't counsel him. Oh, you're, you're such a good listening ear. You're the only one that knows what to say, the right things to say. Oh yeah, you're so good. He's also married, so stop it. Knock it off. <laughs> don't travel. Don't eat alone with. Don't the the potentially dangerous people. You know who they are. You don't want somebody going back to the golden rule. You don't want somebody to do that to your future spouse. Don't do it to their current spouse. <laughs> Treat that person the way you'd want someone to treat your spouse when you get married. The point of a guardrail, again, it's to light up our conscience before we hurt ourselves or other people. And number two, and this is the one you're like, ugh, Brent, I knew you were going to say this. Number two, no sleepovers. And it's awkward, and it's like, oh, boy, here we go. Can't believe I woke up early to come to church to hear this. And when you say it like that, Brent, you make it sound like a fifth-grade activity, right? No sleepovers, guys. I get it. I understand. I, listen, the question of is it a sin, again, perhaps the better question that we've said from the beginning is, come on, is this the wise thing? In light of honoring God with your bodies, is this the wise thing to do? Just a real quick question, even if you're like irreligious and like church is whatever and the Bible doesn't have any sort of moral authority for you, think about your life and just from a secular perspective. 
Does sex make things more or less complicated when it comes to relationships? More or less. When you add that into the relationship, when all of a sudden the relationship hits that level, more or less complicated. Things get easier, or do things get a little bit more emotional? When things are bad, do they feel a lot worse? Does, is the emotion level of your relationship like this, and then when you incorporate it in, it's like this? Which one is it? If in light of that, what would be wisdom in this area? And if for you, you're saying, Brent, you're so out of touch, dude. For, for me, dating is the essentially, the, you, you equate dating with sex, like maybe not first date, because that feels weird, but pretty close to then, and it's just part of kind of what it is, then I, I get it. I would say that, um, I would say that perhaps a distance and time, distance away from and time away from relationships may help you renew your mind and see if you, if you feel like it is impossible to date and not incorporate that, um, then I would say a time away, distance away and time away from that would help you renew your mind in this mindset. So I've encouraged this in the past, like a one-year challenge. And I've said, pull out your calendar and your phone or whatever planner that you have, whatever, go to a, a year from now, April 22nd, 2019, and write, start dating. Now, that does not mean on that day you just pick whoever's closest in proximity and start dating them, okay? That just means I'm going to choose not to date. Why? Because I need a little time to kind of figure out who I am in this moment and, cre- and figure out for myself what are healthy sexual boundaries when it comes to relationships. Now, I always challenge people when you do this, here's what's going to happen. When you decide I'm not going to date anybody for a year, somebody really cute is going to move in next door two weeks from now, three weeks from now. He's going to get a job wherever you work, and he's going to be perfect. He's going to be the man of your dreams. And you're going to be like, Brent, why did I take your stupid, stupid challenge? I cannot believe you talked me into this, and I don't even know... I, I, I don't even know if, uh, if you can hold me accountable to that. Like, I didn't write it on my card. I'm not writing it on my card today. I'm going to keep it. That's just me and, and you and, and whatever. Anyways, I, listen, I get it. I understand. And it might feel very extreme. Everything I've talked about might feel like, oh, my gosh, so extreme. Listen, here's why. Dangerous circumstances and dangerous environments require extreme measures. Dangerous environments require extreme measures. And think about the culture that we live in. Think about the other environments that the other six days of the week you're immersed in. What in our culture equips you and supports you in your decision to remain faithful, to prize fidelity, not just in my current relationships, but I want to protect my ability to experience sexual intimacy with my future spouse in this way. I want to have healthy boundaries so that I don't have to worry about who my future spouse might run into with me at the supermarket. We go to Yokes, and I'm like, hey, this is Kevin. Remember, this is my old boyfriend, Kevin. And he's going, oh, yeah, I remember Kevin. I'm so bummed that we're meeting Kevin right here, and this is very awkward. Nice to meet you. Thank you for sleeping with my girlfriend. You know what I mean? Like, that's a really difficult thing. What in our culture equips you and supports you in your decision to remain enterprise fidelity? Does advertising Surely not. Our movies? No. Netflix? Nope. Books? Probably not, unless they're like self-help books or whatever, but for the most part, no. I mean, church is like the one unique location. So for those of you going, oh, Brent, I totally expect you to say it. What else would you want me to say? And not only that, think about it from the in, in perspective of God's perspective. If you were God and you loved you the way I think he loves you and wants to protect you from future harm, and from future damage, and wants you to experience the most 
powerful sexual intimacy that, that, so that you can come into that with a healthy sexuality, what do you think you would want him to say? Be careful, painted lines, use protection? Or do you think you would say, listen, when you get a chance to talk to him, tell him to flee poor sexual decision-making, flee sexual immorality. Nothing affects the self as much as that. I created to be such a unique gift uh, that it's, it creates such a bond between two people in a committed relationship that when it's, when it's cheapened, when it's taken out of that context, it gets broken down and people begin to question um, whether or not uh, I have trust issues with my, with my spouse in, in the long term. I, it, it, and it affects them so much beyond those relationships. When it's abused, it's, it's just messed up. So please tell them, Paul, flee, flee, flee. Do not flirt with, flee, flee. Fleeing from sexual immorality honors God, it honors you in the way that he made you, and it honors those around you. It refuses to rob from them their ability to have sexual intimacy with their future spouse or their future committed partner by saying, you know what, I have these healthy boundaries, and it's, it's for your benefit, it's for my benefit, and for me, it's my way of taking Paul's advice, therefore honor God with my body. And it might not make sense to you. Listen, I get it, I understand Culture looks at our boundaries, looks at our guardrails, and says, those are stupid. That's a safe zone. That's still safe. You should be able to do this. We are in love. We love each other. We're meant for each other. We're not married yet, but we're getting close. We're the, I mean, I really like you. I don't know if I'm ready to spend life with you, and I'm only 30, so I've got a little bit of time left to figure this out. Yeah, but we've been dating for six years, right? Anyways, that's a different, another message. Anyways, what are you going to do? What would you expect God to say in that moment? He cares about you so much. He's crazy about you. He wants what's best for you. This is not regressive, okay? This is a heightened sense of the, the social makeup that sexuality influences, or sexual, sexuality has as an influence on who we are. And he's like, I just want you to experience the best it can possibly be. So be on your guard. Set up guardrails early. Don't end up in the ditch. The ramifications are really painful. And they're painstaking. And will you ever be forgiven? Of course, of course. Forgiveness is, is at the door waiting, waiting for you. But don't think that you can avoid pain. Don't think that it's gone that way. He loves you too much to keep his mouth shut in this area. And every once in a while, I got to get up here and be like, come on, guys. Come on, come on, come on. Everything else out there says something different. Everything else out there says something different. But five years from now, five years from now, you think you'll regret? That was so stupid. I can't believe I set up sexual boundaries. Five years from now, you're going to be like, you're wishing I would have, I would have more people to be, uh, more things to be embarrassed about when it comes to sexuality. Doubtful, doubtful, doubtful. So, what do we do? We ask ourselves the question, what is a wise way for me to honor God with my body? What are some healthy guardrails that need to be in place in my life based on who I am, where I've come from, where I'm currently at in life, my current status on Facebook, relationship status, and then my future hopes and dreams? Let's pray. Father, uh, this is, uh, 
difficult, awkward, might make for a really awkward drive home today with whoever we came here with, but so, so needed, such a countercultural statement. In, in really no other area is it this, do we experience this much resistance um, and this much of a mixed message from what we live with and are around with the rest uh, of our time outside of this environment? I pray that um, you would help us because a lot of times we hear a message like this and we, we know, we, we see the truth in it and we kind of want it, but we're not ex- even sure what to do or if we're willing to do it or we make movements towards setting up guardrails, but then the noise of everything else kind of drowns it out and we go back into the brokenness that we found ourselves in. God, give us wisdom to know what to do with this. Courage to act on it in your name. Amen.